welcome to the Empowered Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Tudor, Certified Lifestyle Medicine Practitioner. My aim is to help everyday people understand science, not the science, and to use that understanding to make better choices for their health and well-being. Each episode, I'll be bringing my latest Substack post to you in audio form. For the full visual experience, including graphs, charts, images, and videos, view the accompanying post in my Empowered Substack. And now, let's dive in. Episode 35, Backlash, How the Vaccine Pushers Turned True Believers into Vaccine Skeptics, Part 1. The World Health Organization places vaccine hesitancy in the top 10 threats to global health, but its own behavior does not inspire public confidence in vaccines. There's a fascinating phenomenon that I've been observing in the comments section of my substack. As I mentioned in a previous post, are doctors the new anti-vaxxers, people who have never before questioned the safety or efficacy of vaccines or the role they have played in reducing sickness and death from infectious disease, are now casting a critical eye over the entire vaccine enterprise. This newfound vaccine scepticism covers the gamut from wondering whether particular vaccines are safe, effective or necessary, to questioning the childhood vaccination schedule, to outright rejection of anything that carries the label vaccine. Here is a sampling of typical comments. First, a comment by Lane Jolly, who writes the Empathy and Existentialism substack, and who was also, by the way, forced out of her job by the COVID injection mandates. And Lane writes, in terms of the broader vaccine conversation, a few years ago, I would not have considered questioning routine childhood vaccinations, although I've never supported mandates in this space, as I firmly believe the overwhelming majority of parents are trying their hardest to make decisions they genuinely believe are in the child's best interests. But experience post-pandemic onset has caused me to reassess many things I previously accepted professionally. Red Pill Aussie writes, I used to say, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I now say I used to be neutral about vaccines, but after reading RFK's book, The Real Anthony Fauci, I'm a total anti-vaxxer. They're all dangerous and useless. The Goat, who writes the Broken World Substack, writes, when it comes to me and my family, we're firmly opposed to vaccination for the exact reasons you've mentioned here. We've looked at the papers, we've looked at the statistics, and come to the exact same conclusion. Most vaccine effectiveness is determined purely through changing definitions of what constitutes a clinical presentation of that specific disease. Having said that, if someone wishes to make the choice the other way, then that is their decision. And although I may present them the information otherwise, I'm not going to accuse them of all sorts of unsavoury things simply for making a choice. That, and we know from personal experience, that many medical practitioners won't even consider that someone could have a vaccine-preventable disease, even if they present with classic symptoms of that disease. Christian writes, I am slowly coming to the conclusion that almost all vaccines are a con, mainly through my occasional listens to Dr. Sam Bailey, author of Virus Mania. And Moro writes, after watching the COVID horror show, it is not like I'm just anti-vaccine, but I'm almost becoming anti-medicine. It is not like I'll never inject myself or my children with this crap again. I don't want to hear the word vaccine ever again. I'm not the only one who has noticed that more and more people who previously unquestioningly accepted pretty much any vaccine they were offered, both for themselves and their children, are now expressing curiosity, doubt, and even outright hostility to vaccines and the public health apparatus that advocates for them and increasingly mandates them for participation in activities integral to everyday life. 
In an article titled The Vaccine Hesitant Moment, published on the 7th of July 2022 in the New England Journal of Medicine, Heidi Larson and co-authors described with evident alarm the coalescence of a few small scattered stones of vaccine scepticism into a global landslide of so-called vaccine hesitancy in the context of the rushed development of the experimental COVID-19 injections. Regular readers and listeners might remember Heidi Larson from Our Doctors the New Anti-Vaxxers. Just weeks before the first case of COVID-19 was identified in Wuhan, China, Larson warned so-called vaccine safety stakeholders at the World Health Organization's Global Vaccine Safety Summit, held on the 2nd to the 3rd of December 2019, that research conducted by the Vaccine Confidence Project had identified worrying signs of declining confidence in vaccines among healthcare professionals. Like that other notorious Gabfest, Event 201, the remarkably prescient timing of the WHO summit can, of course, be entirely explained by the models formulated by the rapidly developing branch of science known as coincidence theory. Larson, an anthropologist by training, has no academic credentials in immunology, vaccinology, virology, evidence-based medicine or health econometrics. Fortunately for her, none of these were prerequisites for becoming the director of the Vaccine Confidence Project, which is a designated WHO Centre of Excellence on addressing vaccine hesitancy, backed by pharmaceutical companies, the secretive globalist think tank Chatham House, of which Larson is a Global Health Security Fellow, and a gaggle of not-for-profits and NGOs with deep ties to Big Pharma. The interest of these corporations and conflict of interest written organisations in promoting public confidence in vaccines can, of course, be entirely explained by their unbridled love of humanity, which, according to coincidence theorists, overrides motives such as the desire for financial profit and the total control of human activity facilitated by the implementation of a biosecurity state. Previously, Larson chaired the advocacy task force of the Bill Gates-founded Gavi, the Global Vaccine Alliance, whose stated aim is to, quote, improve the health of markets for vaccines and other immunisation products, end of quote. Gates's $750 US million investment in Gavi can also be entirely explained by his unbridled love of humanity and has absolutely nothing to do with his demonstrated commitment to monopolistic domination of every market he enters. Finally, Larson is proudly featured by the World Economic Forum as an agenda author. The interest of the WEF in Larson's work has absolutely nothing to do with the family ties of founder Klaus Schwab and sponsor Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands with the Nazi regime and everything to do with their concern that humanity achieve its full potential for happiness by owning nothing and having no privacy through the vehicle of public-private partnerships just like that formed between the Nazis and the infamous chemical and pharmaceutical manufacturer I.G. Farben, for whom Bernhard worked before he married into the Dutch royal family. But I digress. Let's get back to that New England Journal of Medicine article, The Vaccine Hesitant Moment. Noting that WHO has designated vaccine hesitancy as, quote, one of the top 10 threats to global health, end of quote, Larson and her co-authors blame a number of factors for the recent explosive growth in this existential threat to humanity, including the use of the internet by people to, quote, search online for health information, end of quote, quote, in a landscape of confusing misinformation and disinformation alongside accurate, scientifically-based information, end of quote. The capacity of the internet, and especially social media platforms, to propagate 
anti-vaccine messaging by, quote, offering a new opportunity for people with shared beliefs to self-organise across geographic regions, influencing and sometimes disrupting public confidence and cooperation, end of quote. Quote, a wider decline in trust of expertise and authority, end of quote. Quote, different modes of belief-based extremism, end of quote, aka adherence to conspiracy theories. Quote, political polarisation, end of quote. Quote, libertarian views, end of quote. And, quote, alternative healthcare advocacy, end of quote. Collectively, according to Larson et al., these factors, quote, trigger public questioning about the importance, safety and effectiveness of vaccines, end of quote. If you're starting to bristle just a little at the unstated attitude lurking beneath this cataloguing of the various forms of wrong think underlying vaccine hesitancy, that is, that if you're not 100% on board with taking every vaccine recommended by the public health industrial complex, you must be a stupid, selfish and antisocial rube who has no right and no business using the internet to research topics or meet and organise with like-minded peers, let alone to question the experts and authorities, hold unsanctioned political views, or choose non-state-sanctioned healthcare paradigms. Congratulations, you've managed to retain at least a modicum of self-respect, as well as some capacity for critical thinking. Critical thinking, however, is not one of Larson and her co-author's strengths. Their highly selective recounting of the 2009 H1N1 flu debacle, for example, provides a lesson in the dual arts of memory-holding and doublethink that would set Orwell back on his heels. Whilst admitting that, quote, the initially feared 2009 H1N1 pandemic was not as severe as anticipated, end of quote, and that, quote, by the time the H1N1 vaccines were available, few people wanted them, and some were angered at the perceived hyping of the pandemic risk, end of quote. They are clearly sympathetic to the bemusement experienced by public health experts who, quote, convened to reflect on why there was such low uptake of the influenza A H1N1 vaccine, which was hurriedly developed in response to the pandemic alert issued by the World Health Organization, end of quote. That July 2010 meeting spawned a report titled A Crisis of Public Confidence in Vaccines, which, quote, heralded a warning, the lack of public confidence in vaccines risks undermining the political will necessary to rapidly respond to a more severe influenza pandemic in the future, end of quote. Moreover, when it comes to castigating the public for failing to roll up their sleeves for the H1N1 vaccine, this is not Larson's first rodeo. Writing in the Financial Times in February 2018, Larson complained that, quote, in 2009, during the swine flu pandemic of the H1N1 influenza virus, poor public cooperation and low acceptance of the vaccine was a wake-up call. The public might fall for faulty science, but the more worrying trend in 2009 was the lack of civic responsibility and cooperation, end of quote. And that was from an article in the Financial Times called To Wipe Out Measles, Governments Must Regain Social Trust. What Larson and her co-authors conveniently fail to mention is that in January 2010, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe had launched an investigation of the, quote, 
falsified pandemic that was declared by WHO in June 2009 on the advice of its group of academic experts, SAGE, many of whose members had been demonstrated to have intense financial ties to the same financial giants such as GlaxoSmithKline, Roche, Novartis, who benefit from the production of drugs and untested H1N1 vaccines, end of quote. The resolution authorising the investigation noted that, quote, in order to promote their patented drugs and vaccines against flu, pharmaceutical companies influence scientists and official agencies responsible for public health standards to alarm governments worldwide and make them squander tight health resources for inefficient vaccine strategies and needlessly expose millions of healthy people to the risk of an unknown amount of side effects of insufficiently tested vaccines, end of quote. Even that noted purveyor of tinfoil hat conspiracy theories, Forbes magazine, fumed that, quote, the World Health Organization's actions have ranged from the dubious to the flagrantly incompetent, end of quote, taking it to task for declaring H1N1 a pandemic on the basis of its spread rather than its virulence. The Council of Europe report on the fake pandemic went even further, castigating WHO for changing the definition of a pandemic by dropping the virulence criteria in May 2009, just one month before they declared that H1N1 had crossed the pandemic threshold, and then denying that they had done so. Here's a quote from that report. WHO continues to assert that the basic definition of a pandemic was never changed. Only the description of pandemic alert levels was revised when the document Pandemic Influenza Preparedness and Response, a WHO guidance document, new title, was updated in May 2009. Notwithstanding these assertions, there is clear evidence that changes were made and that, most importantly, the former criteria of impact and severity of an epidemic in terms of the number of infections and deaths was no longer considered relevant in the updated document. In other words, the pandemic could be declared without the need to show that it was likely to be severe in terms of its impact on the population, for example, regarding severity of illness and death. The definition before 4th of May 2009 was worded as follows, quote, an influenza pandemic occurs when a new influenza virus appears against which the human population has no immunity, resulting in epidemics worldwide with enormous numbers of deaths and illness. With the increasing global transport, as well as urbanisation and overcrowded conditions, epidemics due to the new influenza virus are likely to quickly take hold around the world. End of quote. Whilst the same definition became the following on WHO's website after this date, quote, a disease epidemic occurs when there are more cases of that disease than normal. A pandemic is a worldwide epidemic of a disease. An influenza pandemic may occur when a new influenza virus appears against which the human population has no immunity. Pandemics can be either mild or severe in the illness and death they cause, and the severity of a pandemic can change over the course of that pandemic, end of quote. And that quote was from the PACE report, the handling of the H1N1 pandemic, more transparency needed. It subsequently emerged that one of the vaccines that was only able to be rushed to market because of the WHO's falsified pandemic declaration, Pandemrix, caused astonishingly high rates of serious disorders, including narcolepsy, facial palsy, convulsions and death. Yet multiple governments continued to distribute and promote Pandemrix even after their own pharmacovigilance systems had detected a clear safety signal and long after it had become evident that H1N1 was an unusually mild strain of flu. 
In other words, it simply wasn't the case that the public shied away from the H1N1 vaccines because they lacked a sense of civic duty or had, quote, fallen for faulty science, end of quote. Instead, public health agencies both acted on and actively manufactured faulty science and in so doing abandoned their responsibility to act in the best interests of the populations they were meant to be stewarding. But instead of acknowledging that the sordid tale of corruption of the WHO revealed by the Council of Europe's investigation and the slavish adherence to its absurd diktats by national health agencies provides perfectly rational grounds for mistrust, Larson and co arrogantly interpret any questioning of vaccines as prima facie evidence that you're merely an ignorant twat who spent way too much time listening to conspiracy theorists on the internet instead of experts and authorities. Determined not to acknowledge the presence of the pachyderm in the parlour, these highly credentialed stupid people proceed to spend many paragraphs wringing their hands over the rapid spread of negative news stories, which according to their Ministry of Truth criteria always constitute misinformation, even if they're accurate, on social media, and gaslighting individuals who suffer adverse effects after vaccination or observe them in their children. Remarkably, not even once in this tedious screed do they acknowledge the possibility that people might be more trusting of health authorities if those authorities didn't have a proven track record of pandering to their vaccine manufacturer buddies whilst lying to the people they're supposed to be serving and callously dismissing their lived experiences as the ravings of hysterical anti-vaxxers, which defies logic since they had to accept vaccination in order to experience adverse events in relation to it. Instead of urging public health authorities to tell people the truth, their proposed solution to the crisis of vaccine hesitancy is to carry out sophisticated monitoring of social media so they can equip vaccine providers to more effectively fob off patients' perfectly valid concerns. If you feel insulted by these academics' utter contempt for your capacity to assess information and your right to make healthcare decisions that accord with your personal values, Spare a thought for clinicians and researchers who attempt to conduct and publish research that questions to even the slightest degree the safety and efficacy of vaccines. We'll throw open the doors to that wing of the vaccine funhouse in part two. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.